We thank you so much for everything you're doing in and through this house. And right now, we don't want to hear my words, my thoughts, or my opinions. We just want to hear your truth. So Holy Spirit, do what you want to do. Say what you want to say. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Thank you, Devin. Amen. I am beautiful. Kind of an uncomfortable statement to say amongst friends and family and strangers. And Well, hopefully we're going to change that a little bit tonight. We've been talking about two main characters in the Song of Solomon, the Shulamite woman and her beloved, the woman representing the bride and the king representing the bridegroom, or another way to say it, the church and Jesus. It's a picture of a relationship of the bride of Christ pursuing a relationship with our beloved King Jesus. We see this woman throughout the past four chapters in pursuit of this close walk with her beloved king. A picture of how the bride should be wanting intimacy with God. I think when it comes down to it, there's one question that's kind of the central thesis of the entire sermon series. It's, are you so lost in relationship with God that you can no longer be identified of this world? Are you so lost in intimacy with God that you actually take on traits where when people look at you, they say something's different about you. The way you respond is different to how we've been taught to respond. The way you talk is different the way we've been taught to talk. The way you handle uh, anger is a lot different than how we were taught to handle anger. There's something different about you. Not necessarily because you're trying to manage your behavior, but because you're in such intimacy with God that you actually start to have new desires. The scripture says that he will give you the desires of your heart. So life is a process of not trying to manage sin. Because if you try to manage sin, most of the time you're going to lose that battle because it's really easy. The, the, The key to overcoming sin is not to try to manage a behavior but to pursue God in such a way where his natural becomes your natural and sin is no longer a desire because your desires change because he gave you new ones. Does that make sense? The desires only come by one way. And it's not just coming to church every weekend. It's not only reading your Bible to get your reading plan in. It is a place of absolute intimacy and devotion, saying, I want God in every area of my life. From the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep, in my dream state, the whole deal, I want him. The last time we were together, we finished chapter 3, and we saw this Shulamite woman. The people were recognizing her as different. She was no longer identified as a woman with sun-scorched skin because if you remember in chapter 1, we saw that she was working in the fields all day, burnt to a crisp, if you will. She felt like she wasn't beautiful. She had a lot of identity issues. But the people, when they saw her at the end of chapter 3 getting prepared for the marriage to the king, King Solomon, they looked at her and said, whoa, we're no longer seeing a woman from a field. We're seeing royalty. A woman being revealed in glory, surrounded by the warriors of King Solomon. And before I get into tonight's text, I really want to spend a few moments talking about that idea of glory, because we are called to move from glory to glory. 
The scripture says we are to go from glory to glory as we are walking with our beloved. We see this woman revealed in a new level of glory. No longer a sun-scorched skin type of woman, but when they looked at her, they, they, they saw royal. They didn't see slave. They saw something of worth. When you have encounters with God, there should be a shift or change within us and something that people can see. It actually happened with Moses in a literal way. In Exodus 34, 29, Moses has just gone up to the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. And it says, when Moses, chapter 20, uh, 34, 29, when Moses came down Mount Sinai carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he was not aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. It wasn't that his face had become radiant because God decided to perform a magic trick. It wasn't that his face became radiant because God said, I want to bless Moses. Moses spoke with God, and when he came off that mountain, there was a literal transformation revealing a glory in Moses. And if you remember, his, while his face literally radiated or shined because of this presence encounter, he had to put a veil over his face. He had to cover it up. What's interesting about that is going into the New Testament in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 18 it says, So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, I want you to pay attention to that. The Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we're changed into His glorious image. Or some translations say we move from glory to glory, right? We are to be changed from glory to glory with no veil, yet religion has convinced us that our capability of transformation is only figurative and we never encounter these levels of transformation. Isn't it incredible how we think it could happen to Moses in the Old Testament, but it can never happen to us even though we're on the other side of the New Covenant? We, we, we look at a lot of the stuff in Scripture and we think of it as just figurative ideas. Call me crazy. I am a believer that we can have such encounter with God that when we walk out of this room and when we go into strange places like Los Bravos, which we never go to on Saturday nights, we'll walk in there, get our chips and salsa, and they'll say, what's different about you? But we have a limited relationship with God to the man called Jesus who sits in heaven. And we look to Jesus as Lord, but we never look at spirit as Lord. I'm going to dabble tonight. We're quick to say Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. My question is, has spirit become Lord just as much as Jesus has become Lord? Because we'll bow to Jesus for dying on the cross, but when spirit says don't do that, we'll start to reason. Mm -hmm. When spirit, when Holy Spirit becomes Lord, he makes us go from glory to glory because the encounter with submission to the spirit actually transforms us. Moses did not have an encounter with a flesh. He had an encounter with a presence. He had an encounter with the very spirit of God. And it caused literal transformation. 
Because what happens with us is we're quick to give allegiance to Jesus, but when Holy Spirit comes, we, we kind of talk to him and revere him almost as a suggestion. We hear things like God is three in one. It's a term that we see as the Trinity. But a lot of times we really don't understand what Trinity really means. And I've heard Damon Thompson teach on this for a while, and I haven't wanted to teach on it until the time is right, and I believe that the time is right tonight. That the word Trinity in Scripture is from a word, you can throw it up there, Michael, called perichoresis. Perichoresis. Figure just in case if you, some of y'all want to take notes, you can write it down. I'm not trying to figure out what, it, what the spelling is. But the word perichoresis is two words, peri and choresis. Peri meaning circle, and choresis meaning choreography. Literally translated, a circle dance. So when you hear Trinity, you're actually hearing a circle dance. Y'all following me right now? It's not a hierarchy of there's the Father, and then there was Jesus, and then there was Holy Spirit. It is a circle dance relationship of three persons as one. And what the church has done is we put Father really high, and Jesus on our level, and Holy Spirit after Jesus, when truthfully, if you look at Scripture, Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the deep way before a word was even spoken. So, so we, we can't start to look at this as a hierarchy of Father, Son, Spirit. We have to start understanding God is in a circle dance of Father, Son, and Spirit working as one. So if the only relationship you have is with Jesus, then you've missed the point of Jesus. Because Jesus came to show us who the Father is. And when Jesus left, he said, it's better for you that I leave because I'm sending you a helper called Spirit. He will come back when we as a people start to enter in a circle dance of Trinity. A people redeemed by Jesus in a right relationship with the Father, walking with the Spirit of the Lord. He's not going to come back because the church keeps begging Jesus come. In fact, I'm sick of churches saying, Jesus, when are you going to come back? This is his answer. I don't know. They asked Jesus, and the scripture says, he doesn't know the times or the moment that the Father's going to say go. His place in the circle dance is at the right hand of God interceding on our behalf. Interceding on what? That they would say yes to a circle dance of honoring the Father, redeemed in Jesus, and actually revering Spirit as Lord. And when the church starts to revere Spirit as Lord, they're going to be changed into such a glorious image, a, such a glory-to-glory -glory transformation that God says, I don't have anything left to do. And then he says, go get him. Everyone asks, why was Enoch taken up to heaven? He fulfilled his purpose. We have got to get out of this idea of Jesus come to save us and realize he already did that. And he saved you so that you could be rightfully entered into a perichoresis. I am the Father's because of Jesus. And I revere the Spirit as my Lord. 
And if we would get our eyes and our hearts focused on him, we would start to be led. But we spend too much time trying to validate ourselves and find worth in anything we can. When God says you are going to find worth and distinguishing characters of you in the circle dance, in the relationship. It's easy to say yes to anything the world offers because we're trying to get better or we're trying to look beautiful. And God says if you would enter in the circle dance of Father, Son, and Spirit, what's revealed is how beautiful you already are. And you don't need any add-ons to make you more beautiful. So as we go into, this is good tonight already. So as we go into Song of Solomon chapter 4, the beloved is about is walking his bride to the marriage bedroom, the chambers. They about to consummate that thing. <laughs> and on this way to the marriage chambers, he is starting to define her as how he sees her. So this is what happens. I'm going to just go ahead and read verses 1 through 5 of Song of Solomon 4. You are beautiful, my darling. Beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. I'm not so sure this would work for y'all today, so <laughs> don't, don't be picking up. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Verse 2. Girl, your teeth is white as sheep. Recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless. Each tooth matched with its twin. You could tell this guy had game. Verse 3. Y'all calm down. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is inviting. Your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Your neck is as beautiful as the Tower of David. Jewel with shields of a thousand heroes. Your breasts are like two fawns, twin fawns, of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. Basically, King Solomon, Solomon said, girl, you're fine. <laughs> now, what the heck does that mean, right? Well, I want to talk about the context. In chapter 3, we see this wedding procession. The bride's being revealed with the king, coming in chariots. And now that they're married, he wants to have this consummation of the marriage. And he begins by telling her how beautiful she is. If you remember, the Shulamite woman has doubted her beauty and questioned her worth. And he has assured her, you're beautiful. Beautiful beyond words. And many of us are the bride of Christ giving praise to how great Jesus is. But for some reason, it's hard for you to receive what your beloved's response is. You're beautiful too. Because when God looks at you and says you're beautiful and you're worthy, you'll say, yeah, but I did this. No, no, you're beautiful. Yeah, but I went through. You're beautiful. Yeah, but I messed up yesterday. You're beautiful. Perhaps to enter into the marriage chambers with God as the bride of Christ, we must first begin to see ourselves as he sees us. The bridegroom began this marriage not with what happened in the marriage chambers, but telling her how beautiful she was. And yet we think we must become better in order to be that close. 
let me get better so that I can walk with God. And God's response is, I saw you as beautiful and redeemed your right to walk. He begins the circle dance with you're beautiful and I want to die for you. You're beautiful, I want to make you right to house my spirit. Think about it. Jesus spent three years with the disciples doing what? Calling out who they truly were before he ever said, let's consummate this marriage with the cross. Before they, he ever went to the cross to seal it, to say, all right, this thing's done. We're together. Before he ever went there, he spent time calling them out. He spent time saying, Simon, no, 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 you're not Simon, you're Peter. He, he, he was calling them how, how good they were. He basically said, I've come to die for you because we see that you're beautiful and you're worthy. So you are beautiful, and because of that, I'm going to consummate this marriage. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to buy your right to enter in a circle dance with the father who you only look at as a judge, with Jesus who shows you exactly who the father is, and then worthy as a beautiful bride to carry the very spirit of God. You'll never be able to fully enter into a relationship with your beloved until you submit to the correct view of yourself. Because it is seeing yourself as God sees you so that you can submit to the Holy Spirit leading. Because a lot of times when the Holy Spirit leads us and asks us to do something, our first response is, I'm not ready. You'll find that you'll stop using the excuse of I'm not ready when you actually start to see yourselves as he sees you as ready. Because your view is based off of everything you've got wrong and how far you've got to go. His view is, I see you for who you truly are, and the Spirit is leading you into yes moments which will aid in revealing that beauty. Luke 12, 6-7 says this, what is the price of five sparrows, two copper coins? Yet God does not forget a single one of them. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. Jesus is speaking to his disciples here about trials to come, how the Pharisees were going to come against them. And he doesn't look at them, look at them and he says, all right, people of God, get ready to fight. Hear that again. He doesn't say to them, all right, disciples, y'all got to get ready to fight in my name because the enemy's coming. No, no, no. He only said one thing. You need to know your value so that you can be prepared for the yes to the Spirit. He says, you are more valuable than, again, the, the very hairs on your head are numbered. It talks about the price of five sparrows, how it was something of worth. And he says, you're worth more than all of that. He says, you've got to understand that to prepare for the enemy to come. Because when you know your value, you won't question the Holy Spirit's request. Yes. The beloved says in verse 1, your eyes are like doves behind the veil. The Hebrew word for eyes is ayin. A-N, I don't really know how to say it, it's A-Y-I-N, which literally means insight into the natural and the spiritual. The way a dove's eyes are shaped on their ear, they're said to have a binocular vision, meaning they can only focus and see one thing at a time. 
doves also mate for life. They're in such union that if you watch doves flying together, more often than not, when one lands, the other lands. They're in such unity. So when it says your eyes are like the doves behind your veil, the bridegroom is looking at the bride and saying, I see where your focus is. Your eyes can only be on one thing at a time. So when he says, your eyes are like a dove's eyes, he, see, I, he says, I see that the only thing your eyes are on is me. And because her eyes are on king, because when the bride of Christ, when the church, when your eyes are on God, he says, your sight will have a dove's eyes insight into both the natural and the spiritual. God says, I see where you fix your eyes, and I have made you capable of seeing all that you need to see. And maybe the reason you can't see clearly in the natural and the spiritual is because you don't believe you can. Matthew 6.22, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. If you would fix your eyes on him, your eyes are ready to see clearly in every situation of life, in both the natural and the spiritual, where decisions would no longer become blurred or hard, but clear because you have clear vision in both realms. And God has married you and removed the veil so that spiritual things are no longer outside of your ability to see. Which is why when someone says prophecy and words of knowledge and words of wisdom and dreams and all that are not for today, simply remind them the veil's been removed. Yeah. It's been removed so that we can see in both realms. What do I mean when I say we can see in both realms? I can see what is embodying me in the natural but I also see what's inviting me in the spiritual. Or I see that I want this thing in the natural, but I also see what consequences it would have in the spiritual. So you no longer move just off of what you see with your physical eyes. You start to move off of what you see in a circle dance with the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me read verse 1 again. You're beautiful, beautiful beyond words. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Now watch this. Your hair falls in waves like a flock of goats winding down the slopes of Gilead. Mount Gilead is where animals were kept to be, which were ready to be sacrificed in the temple. So a goat winding down the slopes of Mount Gilead was simply this. I see you as a sacrifice ready to be offered. So before I get into that, let me, talk, let me go back to your eyes. I see you as a sacrifice ready to be offered because you're no longer trying to look at anything that comes your way. You, your gaze is fixed. When you see opportunities come, you don't just look at the opportunity in the natural, but you're walking in a circle dance 
with Father, Son, Holy Spirit, saying, Spirit, lead me in this decision because I am ready to sacrifice my wants for what my Father knows that I need. Because the needs he has for you may not feel great in the natural, but they'll lead you into beautiful revealing. Is that? He says, there is something special about you made for this earth. And you may not see it, and your friends may not see it, and your family may not see it, but I see it. So if you would sacrifice your desire in the natural by faith and spiritual, the beauty that is in you that you may not know now will be revealed by that decision. You're a sacrifice ready to be offered. He sees her so devoted to him that she is willing to give up everything. Let me read a very popular passage, but I'm going to give you some new eyes to it. Romans 12, 1 through 2. And so, dear brothers, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he'll find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of the world. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. He sees such devotion that he says, you're willing to sacrifice yourself for me. You truly worship me. When you offer yourself to be a living sacrifice, it is actually simply sacrificing your way of thinking for a new way of thinking. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice is simply to sacrifice your thinking for a new way of thinking, which only comes by way of relationship and circle dance. Why am I saying it only comes by a new way of thinking? Because we have been taught in the church, living sacrifice means serve as your Christian duty. The scripture has become a manipulation by churches to get you involved. Can, can I go there? That, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is sacrifice your thought life so that new desires may come that look like I want to serve, but it's from a place of willingness rather than spiteful. It's I'm presenting my entire body. Think about the body of Christ, right? We're the church. I am sacrificing everything about this temple, my mind, my heart, my flesh, my soul, my spirit, the whole thing, I am giving this to a new way of thinking so that I get desires which take me out of the things that I may want. And I'm willing to go there. I'm willing to do it. It may be painful now for a moment, but I know that if I say yes, the promises of God lead me into peace, lead me into good fruit being Bared in the tree. The problem is we want the good things immediately, but we won't dare to sacrifice how we think because a lot of times we worship at the altars of our own thinking. Well, you don't know how I think because you don't know how I grew up. Sacrifice that experience for a new way of thinking. Sacrifice your earthly culture for a new way of thinking. Well, that's just not how my people do it. 
Well, I'm going to tell you how his people do it. What, what is the key to unity in the church? It is getting beyond the obvious things that separates us and all being willing to sacrifice for a new way of thinking. Are you willing to walk in the circle dance of I walk by spirit, made way by Jesus to show me the Father, which causes me to see with new eyes and offer myself to a new way of thinking? To where I'll actually start to believe what the bridegroom is trying to tell me all along. You're beautiful. Think about it. Why did he come to redeem you by death on the cross? Not because he saw an, a, 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 a problem he had to solve. He saw a beautiful bride he wanted to get back in the bedroom. He said, you are too good. And I'm coming to get you back. Not Jesus coming and saying, man, these people are ugly and messed up. I better go die for them. No, no, no. The father sent his son because he said, I'm getting back my beautiful bride. I see posts on Facebook all the time with church people talking about, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. You are no longer identified as a sinner in the kingdom of God. Because my Bible tells me that Jesus remembers your sins no more. But because you identify yourself as a sinner, you're not willing to give yourself to the possibility that you're beautiful. And because you identify yourself as a sinner, when God says do this, your first response is no, because you can't possibly see how a sinner like you can be worthy to take on such a thing. Because you haven't given your way to an idea of new thinking. Do we dare to say, I am the righteousness of God? You know the scripture says that we are the righteousness of God, which means you're just as righteous as Jesus is. That's blasphemy. No, you're just dumb. <laughs> dumb as in ignorant. You've never been told. Right. See, ignorance is not stupidity. Ignorance is it's light into darkness. Knowledge into what you've never heard. He says you're good and you're the righteousness of God. You're as righteous as you're ever going to be. You're never going to earn more righteousness. What you walk into is a redeemed, revealed, true identity called beautiful. Is this good? So, that, so when you start to weigh the things in your past or the things you're doing now as a mark of your identity, just remember, that. just say to it, that's dumb. I am no longer that. I am a beautiful bride. So I'm going to get my thinking out of what I'm doing and my thinking into who I am so that my desire no longer wants the thing I'm doing. Verse 2, your teeth are as white as sheep, recently shorn and freshly washed. Your smile is flawless, each tooth matched with its twin. Teeth speak of maturity. Let me read 1 Peter 2, 2 for you. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment. What happens when a baby matures? 
What does it start to grow? Teeth. Capable of chewing. What did y'all say? I need to get the security team. As a baby matures, it grows teeth capable of chewing and digesting in order, or in other words, capable of meditating on thoughts and understanding. God says, I see all of you pure, and you have the ability as mature sons and daughters to take in all the stuff and meditate on whether it's something you take in or spit out. He says, you're all sheep grazing in the fields choosing what to take in to digest or not. The problem is many sheep don't grow the ability to meditate and chew because all they ever get in the church is milk. He says... You've got beautiful teeth. You have the ability to chew. You have the ability to meditate on these things. You have the ability to weigh what's good and what's not. And then he starts talking about they're as white as wool. In the Old Testament, wool was actually a symbol of the natural man. So much that priests, when they went into the temple, they were not allowed to wear wool. So when it says your teeth are like white teeth that were recently shorn or sheared, he's saying, I see a bride that has clipped off all of her natural. And people on milk are waiting for someone else to clip off the natural when God says, you're mature enough to clip off your own stuff. Which is a lot of reason why pastors get burnt out because people think the pastor's job is to clip your stuff. We're just supposed to show you how to use the shears. Look at Isaiah 1, 16 through 18. Wash yourselves. Let me say that again. Wash yourself and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the right of widows. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red as like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. See, what we have been taught to do is go to an altar call and say, God, take it away. And God says, I did. It's finished. He says, my work is done. You take off the natural. You thinking that God has to remove your natural is coming to agreement with chains that are not there. Because you think you cannot remove it. There's no more chains that bind you. Cut it off. God, take away this bitterness. You remove it. God, take away this heartache. I can't take it anymore. You have the authority over that heartache. You have the authority over your bitterness. You have the authority to say, I'm deciding no more. 
I am not agreeing with natural man. I am setting my sights and my eyes, and I'm getting in the perichoresis of a dance with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit who is sent here to help me cut the stuff off. He says, I'll make you as white as wool. He says, I'll make you pure. Now go get trimming. And you want to know how it becomes easy to trim off natural? When you believe that you're so beautiful that you don't need all the other stuff that makes you feel good to bring a thought process of beautiful nature. You don't need the thing to make you feel worthwhile. You already know you are. So you're no longer seeking outside influences to adorn you as beautiful. You're getting all the influences off to reveal that you're beautiful. He looks at the bride and says, each tooth is matched like twins. He says, your chewing is able to spit out the crud to have balance in truth instead of adopting other philosophies. He says, every tooth looks the same. They're all mature. They're all white. There's no more natural in what you're taking in. Isaiah 40 says, God will make the crooked paths straight. Modern philosophy is a crooked path when it's not aligned with the word. So he looks at his bride as beautiful white teeth that are like twins when we start to chew and say we're no longer going to take on any truth of modern philosophy that does not align with the kingdom. Maybe the teeth of the church or the people of God should, listen to this, should stop chewing on what the world is doing and start chewing on spiritual things which cause such change and new levels of glory that when the world comes in and says, I want to be like that, we help them to judge what's wrong in them to bring them to God rather than using what's wrong in them to judge them with condemnation. It's we're no longer going to chew on what the world is doing. Can I, can I be honest with you? I get sick of people telling me what's going on in the world. I don't care. All I care about is what he's promised me. And if he's promised me to go from glory to glory to glory, how dare you teach the church that it's going to get worse and worse and worse and worse? Well, that's what Scripture says. The world's going to, there's hurricanes and natural disasters and all this stuff. Yeah, the world. And while that's decaying, I'm white, teeth, sheep, sheared identity. (laughs) That was a tongue twister right there. (laughs) I don't know where that came from. That was not in my notes. Holy Spirit. <laughs> oh, where am I at? We, we, we would start to meditate on the things of heaven, which God says walk on earth as it is. And a lot of times we chew on what the world's doing and we start to get depressed, we start to get bothered, we start to get worried, worried and we wonder why we're getting all these things. You know why? Because you're digesting it and intaking it into a pure temple. Nothing wrong with being aware of what's going on in the world. 
but to meditate on it and figure out why? I'll tell you why. It's influenced by the enemy. Done. Sealed. That's it. How could they do this? I've already told you. Stop meditating those things and saying, God, I, I want to get lost in glory to glory circle dance so that when that person who did that thing that I can't believe they did that thing comes to me, they, they say, how are you so free? How are you doing this? Oh, I'll show you how. Not, you know, you're going to burn in hell if you don't change. That's not going to do a thing. Can I, can I go there? Nowhere in Acts did any of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, or the teachers ever mention hell. The only time Jesus mentioned it when he said the gates of Hades will not prevail against you. It was never used as a scare tactic for heaven because heaven is too glorious to offer the concept of hell. It is too good to need any other reason. If you disagree, I don't care. Verse 3, <laughs> your lips are like scarlet ribbon, your mouth is inviting, your cheeks are like rosy pomegranates behind your veil. Some versions of this actually say your lips are, a, are as Rahab's scarlet ribbon. What Rahab did is she hung a scarlet cord outside her window and was told to stay behind it indoors for protection. It was a symbol of being found in Jesus. Romans 8 says there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ. The red scarlet cord represented the blood. So when the king looks at the Shulamite woman, he doesn't see pale lips. He doesn't see pink lips. He sees scarlet lips. Why were her lips the color of scarlet? Hebrews 13, 15. Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Her praise identified her as his. You can talk about how you believe all day, but you can see what you believe by what comes off your lips. I wonder what color are your lips in the eyes of the Father? Hmm. I'm going to let that one sit for a second. His praise is on my lips. That does not mean the 30 to 45 minutes of singing on Saturday nights. His praise is on my lips as in every moment when your first response wants to be complaint, you give him glory. Because you're trying to shift your mind to a new way of thinking. What do I have to worry about? I'm his. I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. In Jesus there is no condemnation. So what does it matter what this person says about me or that person says about me or even what my boss did to me or that client does to me or my friend said this or my mom and dad spoke this my whole life. No, no, no. Realign your thinking and start to offer off your lips of I am yours. I'm identified as the beloveds. I am beautiful. I'm worthy. I'm righteous. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. That is your true self. And if you'll start to align with true self, it will start to be identified by what's coming off of you. It says her cheeks were like pomegranates. The Hebrew word for pomegranate, Rama, means to rise up. So when he saw his bride, what was rising up in her, the pomegranate colors, was he saw a bride full of passion to be with the king. What's interesting is 
In, in the literal text, this is a Shulamite woman talking to the king Solomon. Well, in Solomon's temple, there were pomegranates engraved at the tops of the pillars. But you remember the, 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 the temple that he built was actually designed by God. So the father delights in a passionate bride, bringing praise in all we do. I wonder, is passion engraved in your temple? You are the temple of God. Does God see you as someone who's passionate for him? Or do you treat God like an option or a nice add-on? But here's a key to passion. It was revealed in her cheeks, meaning she was blushing. In other words, she wasn't proudly passionate. She was humble. Passion isn't legal without humility when it comes to being his bride. Because oftentimes, misdirected passion is actually pride in what you're doing rather than submission to what he's doing. He looks at her and says, you are passionate for me. And I can tell by what comes off of your lips that you love me. And the promise of God says that you belong to me and I'll provide and protect and you will have no need for anything. The passion for God shouldn't be I want to get my church in. Ecclesia simply means a, 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 gather, a gathering of governmental leaders. Church is what in, in, the, in the Hebrew is ecclesia. So the gathering is not meant to be a gathering of a bunch of lost people trying to get saved. The gathering is you all are governmental in an area of influence. So God says, gather them together and prepare them for governmental influence. Submit to identity in him so that your influence is actually backed by a circle dance relationship that he says, I will strengthen you. I will comfort you. I'll help you. See, we're, we're, what's happened in the church is we're making God so external. No, what God says is, he says, take the circle dance everywhere. Take the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit into everywhere that you influence, your friendships, your relationships, your workplace. He says, influence it all. Well, how do I do that? Get together in a meeting called Ecclesia to get equipped to go do it. Oh, this, is, this is good stuff. Okay, 7.45, I'll be done by, by 10. Verse 4. <laughs> Your neck is as beautiful as a tower of David, jeweled with the shields of a thousand heroes. What was beautiful about the tower of David is it was straight and it was strong. It was a mighty fortress. In the ancient world, the neck was a part of the body that actually reflected character. So, like, good character means no broke neck. <laughs> he says, church, I don't know what's wrong with me tonight. <laughs> he said, church, you're joined to the head, not the pastor, 
but God himself. And he says, what joins the body to the head is your character. And let me go a little bit more into character. When you start to believe Philippians 4.13, that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, you start to move according with the head instead of moving along as if you're not connected. In other words, in the tower, it says it was jeweled with shields of a thousand heroes. It was mighty men of victory that hung their shields there on the tower. And the shield for the body is called a shield of faith. Might have heard that in armor of God. So, your character is the ability to move in faith, not just in natural. Because you're moving in the seen according to the unseen, which is a mark of the body connected to a head that is not physically seen presently. I don't, I'm not sure if the looks are in agreement or, or confusion. Is it, okay. okay. He says, the way you're going to keep moving in this world, connected to the Godhead, is a character trait called faith. Take up your shield of faith so that you stay connected to the Godhead, even when your natural says, ain't no way I'm going there. Ain't no way I'm doing that. So, the body of Christ, willing to figure out how to make prophecy actually embraced by the church, is a faith move in a world that says, do church in 60 minutes because people got better stuff to do. It's faith moves. And it may not be the most producing in the natural. But we're willing to make moves according to a character called faith. When we give to God because he tells us to, it may not look right in natural, but we keep connected in a character called faith because we are seen not just with natural, but with spiritual. When we're told to bless those who persecute us, we want to do the opposite in the natural. And it's not God help me to understand, it's I'm going to stay connected to you because I'm holding this shield of victory called faith. And it may not make sense to bless those who persecute me, but I'm more interested in what's coming in the spiritual than the immediate fruit in the natural. Is that, does that help? Okay. God's telling his bride, the thing that connects the body to the head is the very essence of faith. I wonder if God sees faith as the strong shield that protects the connection to God. Do you lean in on the faith or are you still asking for evidence? And verse 5. Your breasts are like two fawns. Twin fawns of a gazelle grazing among the lilies. The breasts cover and protect the heart and it's the place for the beloved king to rest his head as a, and it's a source of nourishment for infants. The king sees the bride as the place to rest his head 
And the king sees the bride as the one who can actually help in providing nourishment. Here's what I want you to remember. I told you at the beginning that the bridegroom was taking the bride up to the marriage chambers, which means she wasn't naked. She was still clothed. She was clothed and walking to the bedchamber with the king, getting ready to consummate the marriage. Her breasts were concealed. But he knew that she was, re- he knew that she was ready to be completely abandoned to him. It's a picture of a bride being open to her groom. A picture of innocence and trust in the most intimate places. You see, God wants a bride who will be willing to be so trusting in him and abandoned to him that it's ready for anything the bridegroom may ask. He likens the breasts to fawns. Fawns, innocent, open, beautiful, completely abandoned. Perhaps why we are to hold on to a breastplate of righteousness is because we're guarding our heart to keep right standing because our innocence, like a fawn, is willing to accept anything that comes our way. Because essentially, what God is saying, there is an innocence in us that can actually be detrimental. Think about Eve. She didn't eat the fruit wanting to to displease God. She just took an invitation like a fawn among the lilies. Oh, yeah, God told you you, you, you'd die? No, 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 you won't die. And she took it, just like that. And he says, you need to put on the breastplate of righteousness so that whatever comes your way, your heart is guarded to not agree with anything that may invite you in. He says, I want the intimate place for me and nothing else in this world. What's interesting is you see throughout this entire first five verses of chapter four that he compliments the eyes, the hair, the teeth, the lips, the cheeks, the neck, and the breasts. To be specific, it's seven different features. In the ancient world and in Israel's culture, seven represented fullness and complete and perfect. God created the earth in seven days. He wanted the seventh day as a Sabbath. There are seven feasts for the Jewish people. There are seven churches in Revelation, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, and so much more. It's a number meaning perfect and complete. And it's the same number that God highlights to say, I'm identifying my bride as being complete and perfectly suited for me. And that's why he bought you back. And that's why he redeemed you. And that's why he says, get in the circle dance. I close with these last two scriptures in 6 and 7. And we'll start here next week. Before the dawn breezes blow and the night shadows flee, I will hurry to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. 
You're altogether beautiful, my darling. Beautiful in every way. The mountain of myrrh and hill of frankincense. It's actually speaking of Mount Moriah. Where incense was burned daily to God. Christ was so pleased with the beauty of his bride. That he made a way for us to be the place to rest his presence. So I'm with you always. You're my dwelling place. You're beautiful. Let us walk in that identity. You think about Christ being on the earth. He was so willing to go to the cross. Because he looked at the bride for three years and said, I'm doing this for you. God says, I'm going to consummate this marriage. And it all started with, let me tell you something about yourself that you haven't heard. You are beautiful. When you begin to see how God sees you, there is such a freedom and access to all the things that we hope for. We always have prayer workers at the altar call and we're going to have them tonight and we come up here and ask for prayer, but hear, hear me out. Some of you have been asking for God for the same stuff for years and years and years. And the answer may simply be in understanding you are beautiful. You are worthy. You are capable. You don't have to be tossed to and fro by the winds and waves of the world. You can finally rest in an assured identity that I am the beautiful bride of Christ. He sees me as worthy and he prepares me for anything that will come my way. It's sacrificing thinking for a new way of thinking. You may not understand it at all right now, but you connect your understanding to the headship of God with your faith. And I assure you, as you're transferred from glory to glory in this circle dance, what you had faith for yesterday and didn't understand, you will get understanding when you see the breakthrough. That is a level of going from a glory of I don't get it to a glory of oh, I see. And then like the breasts of the bride, God says, now that you can provide that nourishment, go help a brother. Go help a sister. And when the church goes from glory to glory, when we actually start to believe this stuff, there will be a day when the world needs answers. And because we have gone from glory to glory to glory, we'll be able to say, we have understanding that is beyond our capability. Because we dare to believe that we're beautiful. You are his beloveds. Let's believe it. Amen.